Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Hope Through Grief. I'm one of your co-hosts, Steve Smelsky, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Marshall Adler. Hello, everybody. Hope everybody's doing very well today. We wanted to let you know we have a uh, very special guest on today that's going to talk with us some about the topic of suicide. Uh, we've talked about that three or four times in the past. Today, we have... Uh, songwriter, musician, founder of Honey Dogs, Mr. Adam Levy, and he's here and he's going to spend the next hour having a conversation with us. Adam, welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve and, and Marshall. Good to be here. So to get us started, we thought we would just come back to you and, and just ask you to share your story and how you've uh, been pulled into this world of grief and the valley of grief and and that'll get us started. And I know everybody would like to hear your story. Well, my son took his life in 2012. So we're now about eight years out from the suicide and from his death. And my son died at age 21 and had been struggling in his young adult life since about 16 with some mental health issues that got progressively worse. His mom and I, his mother Jennifer and I, were both very connected with Daniel and with his mental health therapies and medications. And he was really open with us about what he was going through, which was a blessing in a lot of ways. I don't feel like there was any surprise to his death as tragic as it was, it was something that we lived with almost like a, a terminal illness of sorts. You know, we watched his disintegration over a few years. We were hopeful. We were engaged. We felt that he was doing as much as he could to kind of cope and to be hopeful as well. And so those ebbs and, and flows just became kind of a normal part of life. And in his last year, things got really bad. His diagnosis was bipolar, but we suspect because of a number of psychotic episodes that it's possible he was dealing with something more akin to schizophrenia, some sort of schizophrenic affective disorder. But it was frightening. It was frightening watching a child pull away become really a ch changed, altered person, almost as though it was a, a spirit possession of sorts. You know, he became so, so different in so many ways. It was like we lost him and, and we were holding on to a, a balloon that was gradually slipping away from us without us really being able to do anything about it. Um, I'm trying to think what else. He was an amazing artist. And he channeled his suffering through his art. I don't know if we can get people a link to that so they can actually see this as they're, as they're listening or after. His art was pretty remarkable. And at 21, I think he was just kind of coming into his own. It was a world, his art was a world of ghouls and uh, monsters and uh, kind of tortured individuals and as a parent you know watching that art unfold there's a part of you that's just like oh my god this is just 
you know, can you just, can you paint some things that are a little more contemplative and peaceful, you know, landscapes maybe, but this was his internal world. This is what he was experiencing and art became a, a conversation for him, a way of processing outside of medications and therapy, what he was seeing. And so whether it was like a literal representation of this inner turmoil or whether it was a more symbolic discussion he was having, it was his way of really processing what he was going through. And it was dark. But one thing I will say is as dark as that art that he was, was it also felt there was a level of empathy. I felt there was a level of empathy in the art. I never worried about my son going and killing anyone else. I did. I always worried about him self-harming, but because there was such an intense connection to other people's pain in his art, in our conversations, I, I knew, I felt bad for him that he was such a hypersensitive kid, like his dad and like his mom. But I, I never really worried that he was going to be one of those kids that would go out and shoot somebody else. So, you know, I could go on and on here about, you know, bearing witness to, to his pain. It was obviously an incredibly horrible, life-altering experience losing a child. I, I never would have imagined there's no words, there's no words in our language that, that name a parent that loses a child. It's like, it's one of those things that's just so horrific and almost taboo that we don't have a way of really discussing it. And so there's a lot of shame and guilt around losing a child to suicide because as a parent, you're of course always wanting to help your child and your responsibility with your children is making sure they survive and they're happy, right? And so losing a child to suicide is in some ways a condemnation of you as a parent that you had, you know, you failed your job. And so I've spent a lot of time processing those feelings just as well as the massive loss that you have. Adam, let me ask you something. It's interesting. You're mentioning a lot of similarities. I, Matt was 32 when he passed and throughout his life, he was, unbelievably empathetic in grade school he was called the comforter because he always took on all of his friends problems which as a parent you're proud that he's a loving empathetic person but then you start worrying about the toll that would take and looking back they took a huge toll and as he got older i remember at his bar mitzvah you've got pictures and he was just so happy, and as he went into becoming a teenager, you just sort of saw the happiness light get dimmer. It wasn't gone, but it got dimmer. You saw the pictures before, smiling, happy, funny, and then you saw the pictures afterwards, not so much. And he dealt with chronic depression, and he also was diagnosed with bipolar. But with him, he was hilarious. And we always thought that humor was going to be his saving grace because he just was, I mean, really, really funny. 
but he was super smart also. Like Daniel, he was very artistic in the sense that he was a he wanted to be a movie director and he actually moved to California. And the last three years of his life were the happiest years of his life. And I think because he was so intelligent, the protocols that medical technology had to treat him didn't work and he knew they didn't work. You know, there's been medical studies now showing that MRI brain scans of people with suicidal ideation are anatomically different than those who don't have suicidal ideation. And whatever this anatomical brain disease that both of our sons had called suicide, I don't think medical technology has an answer for it. So he went to multiple doctors, supposedly the best in the area and best in the country, was on multiple medication. And he, the last three years of his life, he told us, he goes, I'm done. This dulls me. I don't like feeling like this. I'm not going to take this anymore. And we were so scared. And we're saying this is the worst thing he could possibly do. We were wrong. He was right. The last three years of his life, he didn't take any medication at all. He was the happiest of his life. And I've talked to so many suicide survivors who told me, gee, I wish my loved one did that because he stayed on medication and it didn't make any difference anyways. They ended up by, it's not like, oh, if you stayed on medication, this wouldn't happen. I've had literally hundreds of people tell me, I wish the medication would have stopped because at least the last part of my loved one's life would have been much happier. And with Matt, I think that we didn't know at the time, but he told his younger brother, David, that, he was not going to live a long time. And I think he just felt I'm going to make every single day the best day I can for as long as I can. And I'm going to fight this until the day that I can't. The last time I saw him, I drove him back to the airport, to hop on the plane to go to San Diego, knowing he'd have to come back. He had to do some work. He had to come back from when my mother, when my mother passed. So he was waiting for my mother to pass to come back. And I just told him how proud I was of him because he'd absolutely taken his life and done a 180. He was living with some friends from Orlando, a married couple, another friend in a house looking over Pacific Ocean, Oceanside, California. He went to film school. He was working on projects with people there. He was doing YouTube original content. He actually met one of his heroes, Oliver Stone, about doing a movie. And I told him that as a parent, this is like what you want to see. And he told me that he goes, life doesn't care what you're going through. Life's going to do what's going to do. It all depends how you handle it, how you cope with it. And I go, Matt, that is so wonderful for a parent to hear that you're able to cope with whatever life has to throw out, throw out at you. So we hugged each other and I said, see you soon when he comes back after my mother passed. Never saw him again. He, he was gone less than two weeks later.
after was I thought was a Hollywood ending. So my question to you is, I think Matt went out on top and I think he was fine with it. What's your interpretation about how Daniel's last years were? Um, that is a, a moving description of that uh, exit for sure. You know, Daniel, as I was saying earlier, continued to get worse as time went on um, and tried a different medications and did ECT and nothing was really seeming to work or at least things would work temporarily for a month or so. And then we'd be kind of where we were at the end. I buy into that idea that there's a physiological difference in brains of people who, who do suicide. And I've, you know, I've kind of been watching a lot of the science around that. I think there's a Miami university or somewhere in Florida, there's a, a scientist who is doing research on the amygdala, which is the frank, the fear. One of the, loci of fear in our brains. They talk about the amygdala being this part of the brain that processes fear and that there are differences in the amygdala of people who suicide, that there's a lack of fear that most of us have that kind of keep us in check. And that for some reason, there's this pattern with a lot of folks that commit suicide, that suicide, I should say. So, I, you know, as much as I tried to discourage Daniel and, you know, that's your worst fear is your child suiciding. I think Daniel made a real conscious decision whether or not there was physiological difference in his brain. In other words, I feel like he being able to get on his computer for the last few days before his death and sort of see the process of what he was watching, where he was going. He was kind of negotiating in his brain. Do I want to do this? Does this make sense? He got a hold of a person in Finland for the suicide technique, which was um, a nitrogen process that's, you know, it's, it's hard to find out how to do it. But Daniel did the research so that he could have a painless death and that he could preserve organs for other folks. And so as angry as I was at him for a little bit about leaving us, I understand the choice that he made, even though it's not the one that I wanted to make. The pain was so blinding for him. There was nothing that was going to alleviate that, at least in his mind, in his experience, Everything presented to him added up to a life of continuing agony. And that's one of the worst things to watch a child in that kind of pain where there's no resolution, no hope. So for Daniel, that's where he was at. And I wish that there would have been other things that we could have leaned on. I know there's a ketamine treatment that's been talked about, and I've spoken with some people who used this ketamine as they were sort of guinea pigs in some of the tests at, at Yale. And 
there have been huge differences. A woman I talked to said after six months of the treatment, she she no longer has any suicidal thoughts. And she'd suffered with them for years and years. And now they were completely gone after six months of that treatment. And, and I spoke with her and she was still doing really well. So, you know, I think there are people that are really working on this now. But I feel that the information that Daniel had, the experience that he was under, and the sort of the psychophysiology of his brain didn't really leave any other choices but that final one. You know, it, it's interesting. I've said before that, to me, suicide is like the iceberg that sunk the Titanic. Everybody knows the Titanic hit the iceberg, but, you know, icebergs like a ice cube in your drink, only one-tenth of the icebergs above the waterline, 90% of the icebergs below the waterline. The 10% above the waterline didn't sink the Titanic. It was the 90% below the waterline that they couldn't see. And with Matt, the 10% above the waterline that we saw didn't take his life. So from my standpoint, I viewed this as something that Matt battled with for as long as he could. Like I, I know my younger son, David, at the eulogy mentioned that the two boys, they, they were very close. They loved each other, but entirely different. Matt was artistic and completely open with every part of his life, like an open book. David was very athletic and he was a very good tennis player in the paper all the time. And people think, oh, you're a good athlete. You're really tough. And Dave said, he goes, my brother Matt was a thousand times tougher than I ever was because he was giving the world the 10% that we saw above the waterline of the iceberg that was this incredibly loving, funny, entertaining, caring human being when he had a fight with those demons, the 90% below the waterline that, that ended up taking his life. So my, my question to you is, did you see this coming? Because I've talked to so many suicide survivors that lost loved ones to suicide that were even though their loved ones had taken multiple unsuccessful attempts, they were still surprised because after the multiple unsuccessful attempts, they would say, I'm never going to do this again. Thank God I'm alive. I love being alive. I want to enjoy every moment for as long as I'm here. And then they're gone. So even though I know you said you had concerns, did you, were you surprised or, or were you not surprised? I mean, there's no way to not be surprised when it actually happens. You're, you're afraid. I know the last six months I was really, I would tell people when they'd ask me, oh, how's Daniel doing? I'd say, I'm really worried about him. I went to a funeral of a relative the week he died. And I was in the synagogue and looking upward and just thinking, I know I'm going to be back in here. I have no doubt 
that this is going to happen. I don't know when, but it really upsets me that I'm that certain that my son's not going to be here. And I, I kind of talk myself out of those thoughts. Like, you're just really scared. It's not going to happen. The last week of my son's life, I was on the phone with him. He lived in Saratoga Springs, New York, with his mom. And I was on the phone with him literally every day for that week before he took his life. And almost every day we would talk for two hours. And I would try to come up with, because he was really about to check out or he said, I'm, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to be here. And I would say things like, Daniel, imagine that, you know, like Daniel was really into Hieronymus Bosch and a lot of these really ghoulish artists that portrayed these really surreal kind of hellish worlds. And I said, well, what's to say that if you took your life and you left here, that you would end up in a place like that? You know, like you think this is painful. What if there's something that's infinitely more torturous, you know? Well, who and knows? He, he paused and said, and told his mom that night, like, I think dad's right. Like, it's not my time to go. And so I would get these glimmers, like, he's listening to me. He's not going to do this. I can remember one day talking to him for hours about people with terminal illnesses. And he and I had both done a lot of reading about the Shoah, about the Holocaust and survival through that in concentration camps and death camps. And Daniel there are people who've had terminal illnesses that have survived because of the will. You know, people have been through the, ex the horrific experiences of concentration camps and the Shoah, and they managed to live through that because they were hopeful. Can't you just summon a little bit of that energy and be inspired by that to hang on for a couple more years? You know, you're not going to be in this place when you're 26, I, I just, I can't believe it. And he said to me, dad, the difference between the people you're talking about and me is that they wanted to live. And when your kid says that to you, there's really is nothing you can do to come back to them other than shaming them. Like, well, what about us? You know, you're going to leave behind all these people that love you. But if the, if the, if the desire to be there doesn't really exist any longer, or it's so tenuous, you're fighting a, a major uphill battle. And that's kind of what we knew we were dealing with. So when I got the call from his mother and, uh, you know, I was shocked, but there was also a sense of, oh my God, our worst fears are being realized. And we knew this was going to happen. After Matt passed away, we had, Funeral here, funeral here at the temple, and it was a huge turnout. Half the people were Matt's friends, half the people were our friends that didn't know Matt very well. And so I talked about Matt's life and movies a lot, and all of his friends that I knew here came to me, and I had to console them because Matt was such a huge part of their life. And in some ways, it really meant a lot to me seeing how he affected their lives. But what happened is his friends in California that we met a few times, again, it was 3,000 miles away. We'd go out there, we'd meet his friends, and he would tell us what they were doing. And after Matt passed, they had a service for Matt, a tribute. And 
they had like they had to keep on trying to find a bigger venue because so many people wanted to give a eulogy. And we were thinking of going. We didn't go. We got a video of it. And people I never heard of, people I, I never met talk about were saying how Matt affected their lives positively. But two of his very good friends, one was a male, one was a female, told me that Matt had a real interesting take on sort of what you said, where they said that Matt knew that we'd really miss him. And he knew that his friends would really miss him. And he felt that if we all knew what he was going through, we would not only understand what happened, we would, again, not accept it, but almost view it as selfishness on our part to say, we want you to continue to make us happy. We want you to make us laugh because you're so damn funny. We want you to make us feel comfortable at night that we know you're safe and sound. And what they said is they gave me a different view of it that from his standpoint, it almost would have been selfish for us. Like if, if, if he had terminal cancer that you just know is horrifically painful and they're doing chemo and surgery and radiation and there's no chance of this not being a fatal disease, and you say, keep on doing that, let them chop you off, keep on doing whatever you need to do, no matter how painful it is, because we want you to go through this for our own selfish reasons. Nobody would say that if it was cancer that you could see. And this, it was a cancer that's no different, but it was a cancer in his brain that we couldn't see. So hearing it from that standpoint, again, I would never accept it, but it gave me a different understanding of it. Do you have any feelings like that also? Yeah, certainly. Um, I, you know, I go back and forth between the notion of, you know, what is selfishness? Is wanting somebody to stick around a selfish impulse or is it one, you know, was I was I wanting my son to hang on for his own goodness you know that's so they're so interrelated um i know that i i can remember being in the hospital and he was on life support after his suicide attempt i call it a suicide mm -hmm. attempt because there was at least a couple of days where we thought perhaps he was going to pull through it and so he was uh seizuring for the first day that he was on life support really violently. And I remember looking at his body and thinking that it was almost as though he was on a, a balloon that we were, we were holding and we were just holding that balloon so tight. He was really trying to get away from us. He wanted freedom from this pain and I can remember a conversation with my mom like 
the second day he was in the hospital, she said, just let him go. You got to just let him go. You can't hold on to him. He was in such immense pain and you can't, you can't let that, the guilt and shame around that keep you hanging on to him because he doesn't, he didn't want to be here. He doesn't want to be here anymore. So I, 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 at some point felt like I was allowing him, I was giving him permission to leave us. How has this affected his mother and you have a, am I correct, step siblings? He had uh, two half sisters. Okay. So they, I mean, they're, they're adult women now, 19 and 21. Uh, you know, one of them is the age that Daniel was when he left. Daniel would be, I think, 31 now if he were still alive. And of course, it's been, it's the, the most impactful thing that's ever happened to my children in their lives. And I think there have been some really tragic consequences of it, but there's also been some really powerful awakenings for them about the nature of mental illness and how to be proactive about it in their own life and not just to be kind of paralyzed by it, but to really deal with it and and a, and, a, and a sense of hope in both of their lives that they're going to be advocates for their friends and be helpful and talk to us about their own suffering when that happens. But I think they realize like this is a part of who we are as a, as a race of human beings, as a family, this is, this is a, a real integral part of being human. The, the fact that we've got these big brains and that, we think a lot and we worry a lot and we connect with others' pain. And this is just par for the course. His mother has been, I'd say, much more tough. And I think that's one reason why Daniel, he was going to college here at MCAD, the, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, working on an art degree, and decided a couple of years into the program he just wanted to go home. He didn't want to be in the art program. He wanted to be closer to his mom. His mom was really nurturing, but she was always really tough with him. And I think he really wanted somebody that was really kind of bossing him around a little bit. And his mom, for a while, was just every day, get up, take a walk, get into work. You know, she was unapologetic about her um, keeping him moving and not depressed and in a lump. But there wasn't anything she could do at the very end as, as much as she browbeat him and berated him and encouraged him and, you know, tried to prod him along. There was just nothing that could really be done in the end. And so I think she is at peace with Daniel's choice to leave as painful as it was. And as close as she was, you know, a mother and a, and a, and a child's relationship is, incomparable you know there's just nothing like it i felt really close to daniel and loving but there's something about a mother and a child that's that is beyond profound and uh interconnected so we talk i would say every month we at least have a conversation about stuff and what she's going through but she's really she's a tough tough woman you know it's it's interesting because Debbie, my wife, Matt's mother, we talk about her journey 
as a mother who lost a son versus my journey as a father who lost a son. And it, it is different. And there's things that I can do that she doesn't want to do. And there's things that she'll do that I don't want to do. And it's, it's strange. Like I, I dream about Matt every night. I mean, literally every single night. And before he passed, I used to have more than nightmares that he had passed. And then I'd wake up and say, thank God, that was a nightmare. I'm, that's not reality. Now I have dreams with him, and it's our relationship now where he's, Sometimes he's alive and this never happened. Other times he tells me this did happen and he's wherever he is, he's contacting me like that. And then I'll wake up and it's the flip side of that coin now saying, well, that was a dream and the reality is he's not here. And I've sort of come to a realization that I, again, before Matt's passed, I never believed in afterlife at all, but now I absolutely do. We've had all these different sightings and light things. And I, we also, we had a forensic expert go through Matt's computer and his cell phone, and we knew everything that he was doing before the end of his life. And it's funny, you're, with your background in music, Matt would love you. You know, we were huge Beatles fans, and Matt loved all these different types of music. Some stuff I didn't know what the heck it was, like Nine Inch Nails and all these other things. And of all the songs that he listened to, the last song they listened to on this planet was 1967, The Association, Never My Love. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah, it's the last song. Did you know that my band plays that song? Are you kidding? No. See, see, this, this is this is bizarre. This is, this is bizarre. I have no idea. Matt would occasionally like a poppy song, and he would say, "I don't like it." And then, like, he said, "Okay, I like it." Like he would like uh, "Brandy or Fine Girl" by Looking Glass, nineteen seventy-two, and you know this poppy song. And he sort of, he would sort of like almost be ashamed. Yeah, I really do like it because we hear on the radio. We sort of kid about it. And I think for me, there was a woman that I think he was in love with that a year before attempted to take her life, didn't succeed. She thanked everybody for all the wishes of help and support. And she was so positive that this was going to be the start of her life forward. And I think two weeks later, she passed by suicide and all of Matt's friends in California said that he never got over that. And that was about 10 months before he passed. And so never my love by association. Why did he listen to that? I'm trying to make this, you know, thousand piece puzzle fit to figure it out. But we've had so many times where, that has popped up on random, inexplicable times. Like when we went to Grief Share with Steve, was this support group. The last thing we did is we went to a 
bonfire where everybody wrote a note to your lost loved one. You threw it in the bonfire and smoke one up, and hopefully they got it. And Debbie wrote a note to Matt saying, Matt, we haven't had any signs from you lately. So she threw it into the bonfire, smoke goes up, and then we're leaving. And, you know, we got Sirius Satellite Radio, 12 million channels. And I just happened to turn it on right when we're leaving. And, of course, here's 1967 Association uh, of Never My Love. And we look at each other. And we're going, are you kidding me? Of all the songs that could possibly be played, was it one out of 10,000 or whatever it is, they were playing that. And we've had all these other times that that has shown us that I think Matt is still part of our lives in a different form, but still connecting with us. So now that you're eight years out, my question, how are you doing with everything? Because I've sort of reached a sense that my relationship with Matt is ongoing. If somebody would told me this three years ago, same story, I'm saying, poor soul, he's he's hallucinating, he's just making, you know, wishes that hopefully this, that. I'm a lawyer. I've got a base, you know, my, I do a lot of litigation. My practice is based on evidence. I got to present every case based on factual evidence to win the case. So I'm a very cynical, factual, empirical guy. And I won't get too much into it, but we've had nothing but signs that I'm 100% convinced Matt is still communicating with us and my relationship with him is ongoing. So in some sense like that, I do have some contentment and pride of what he did when he was here and what I want to do now is make him proud of me that he's not here. So I'm interested in how you are eight years out because I'm about a little over two years out. Well, that's a really big question and I will answer it, but I really <laughs> didn't want to talk about this never my love coincidence for a moment. Okay. So I play in many bands and I've played cover music for 20 years and played different covers. My newest band that I'm in is called Turn, Turn, Turn. And it started as a cover band with two women where we would do three-part harmonies and do a lot of kind of Laurel Canyon, Beatles, 60s, 70s country folk stuff. And a lot of, you know, we've just done a lot of covers. And we made an originals record this year. I just decided, like, I really want to use this group to record some of my original music and kind of force the two of those women to write some of their own stuff. We put this record out and people have responded really well to it. Uh, we still will throw in one or two covers in a set. Tonight we have a show. We are playing. We only had a half hour to play. So we had to figure out, well, what are we going to play? And so I said, well, let's just do one cover. Let's just do Never My Love in the wow. set. So tonight <laughs> oh, I will announce the show. I you're, will not kidding him. you're not kidding. This is true, no, right? This is absolutely true. And I, I think we do a really good version of the song, and I'll try to connect you to a link right. to it so you can yes. actually hear and see it. But I will now, when I play this song, I will introduce it every time and talk about you, Marshall, and your wow. son. So, wow. uh, you know, at least that personal connection that we're having, um, I, I believe in all of those that that kind of serendipity. My my son has been seen a, a number of times. My my brother, who also is not a particularly spiritual or religious person, was walking in San Francisco 
and with his wife mm-hmm. and they were in the mission in San Francisco and this boy was walking towards them, a young man. And they both looked at each other and his visage, you know, half a block away was very similar is the whole sort of, you know, walk and everything was so similar when they got, when they walked up to him, the boy looked at them and just nodded his head and smiled. And Noah and Judy just started crying because the resemblance was stunning. Um, And he's visited me in dreams. You know, I feel like I have a living relationship with my son still. I'll talk to him. And I mean, it's not, you know, he's not always here. He's not always in my midst, but I feel his presence sometimes. It, it's amazing you mentioned it because we've heard a lot of people have. So, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned, I think, before we started that you were good enough to send artwork that Daniel did. And there's one picture of Daniel that I looked at and it looked like Matt. And I saw the other pictures of Daniel, and Matt and Daniel didn't look anything alike in any of those pictures. But the one picture you sent me with his glasses on, I'm looking at this, and I'm going, if somebody sent me that, I'd say, what was that picture of Matt taking? Because we get friends yeah. taking pictures of Matt we didn't know happened. And and I'm looking at that, and there's just too many interconnecting pieces that to me are, are inexplicable. And this thing with the never my love now is it's just, again, how many thousands of songs have you done in your career? And that's the one you're opening, you know, you're going to play tonight where we have to do, you know, you're doing this with us today. I, and so again, I miss Matt every single day. And some of it is selfish because I like laughing and Matt was just funny as hell his entire life. I mean, the last, again, my last conversation with him was just hilarious. And I really miss that laughter, but I sort of still get it now because I'll think about things that, that he, he said, you know, like, um, just, you, you'll appreciate this is somebody's music business. I remember when, uh, Jerry Garcia died in the Grateful Dead, you know, and, and, I was never that much in the Grateful Dead, but Matt was, and, you know, Matt was just so funny. He said, Jerry Garcia's diet was cigarettes and heroin. Who thought that health nut would die, you know, at a young age? And he just sort of, like, made this funny comment about Jerry Garcia's death, and he just saw things differently. I knew Jerry Garcia was a rock and roll guy. I don't know if he smoked or heroin. It was a joke, obviously, but it was just a joke that, only Matt would make. He saw things differently. And the way he saw the world was not how I saw the world. And I loved the fact that he was my son because he opened my eyes and taught me things that I never would have been exposed to otherwise. And so many of his friends told me that they feel so fortunate that they were led into his world because it was just a different way of looking at things. And was, was Daniel like that also? I mean, did he have a different view? Again, it's all how your brain works. And Matt's brain was just so much different than my brain. I was really enjoying the difference. Well, yeah, absolutely. Daniel uh, was also really funny and had a wonderful sense of humor. And 
I've had videos sent to me of him laughing and his laugh was just so infectious. And um, a lot of his art was disturbing, but a lot of it was also really playful, funny, beautiful, um, comical. I've had a lot of his reach out to me or people that I didn't know were his friends or people who knew Daniel tangentially or knew about him, but say how much of an impact that brief encounter with him or his story has had on them. And so that has been really soul nourishing for me to hear the ripple effects, the butterfly effects of my son's life on so many people. In the very end, he really isolated and it was hard to get him to interact with any friends and they would try to get pull him out of his shell and he just didn't want to socialize anymore. But there was a time when he was a really magnetic personality and people loved being around him and loved hanging out with him. And he had friends that he would do art with and he had friends that he skateboarded with. He's an amazing skateboardist as well. There's a really great video called Dan Levy, Dirty Maneuver, that is seven minutes of a a friend of his after he died, a compilation of some amazing moves that Daniel did as a skateboarder. He was just amazing. And the first half of the video, we showed it at his funeral. The video, the first half of the video is all just horrible spills where he's just one wreck after another. And I can remember how worried I was about him as a parent, you know, dude, you're not wearing, you're not wearing a helmet. You're not wearing helmet pads, like all your worst fears, but he would just, fall and spill and get back up and he was had horrible abrasions sometimes and probably hairline fractures uh, and then the second half of the video he's in flight and he wow. is so elegant in his movement and so so different from me i'm such a, a clumsy oaf you know to watch your child move like a, was just it's amazing to me just to, to watch that Adam, I want to ask you early on in your grief, what helped you through? What did you, what did you lean on? Who did you go to? Did you attend any grief share sessions? I, Shelly and I took six months off from work. We couldn't work right after. How did you manage? Because those first six months to a year are horrible. Right. I, you know, I, I had this sense of responsibility. I don't know if it's being a first child or being a somewhat public figure. I I felt the need to explain and, and, and the parent and being a parent, like I needed to explain this to my children. I needed to explain this to my family. I needed to have a narrative in my own head of why this happened to make sense of it. So talking for me and talking publicly, doing interviews, doing a lot of uh, social media conversations with people about it, I was really public and people were sort of awestruck by how engaged I was about it. But it really was for me, it was therapy. And I talked about it. I wasn't able to make music as comfortably as I had. I sort of needed to take a break from writing music. Um, but I did put a record out within a couple of months of his death. And that was because it was sort of like in the pipeline and I had to put this record out. 
but I didn't write any music about him. I didn't deliberately sort of like, I didn't want to do anything that would cheapen or trivialize any of what he had been through. But as time went on and my grief was kind of moving into different stages, I started writing more about it. And I drew on, I think the public conversations really helped me develop a story, a narrative about his life, about our grief. It helped me make sense of it. And it affected the way I started to write music. And, you know, for me, writing music is one of the predominant ways that I process the world, relationships and the kind of existential experience I have and spirituality and politics. And it all sort of like music is is the, the primary way that I interact with the world around me and in my internal world. So I started writing songs that felt like at first they were just about my own grief because that felt safe. Like I could write about what I was seeing rather than trying to imagine his world. But as time went on, and I, I could kind of dive in there a little bit. I'm having a little bit of uh, audio interruption. I don't know if those are on my yeah, end or I or think yours. it's on my end. I apologize for the That's okay. outside. Uh, can, can you hear me okay? Yep. I can hear you fine. Yeah, so, you know, that. I, I, I think as time has gone on, um, I mean, and I also, when I finished that record, I wanted to play all those songs for people. And people would just cry when I play the songs because they knew the story. And they were like, how can you not burst out and fall apart when you're doing it? And for me, it just felt so cathartic and so great to connect with people. Eight years or five years since that record came out, I can't play those songs right now. You know, I don't know if part of my grieving process that I needed to kind of communicate and, and express and now i've sort of retreated a little bit when people ask me to play those songs i'm i'm hesitant i'm reticent and i i uh i kind of need to get needed to give a break for a bit so that you know that's been interesting to me too of of grief and the processes that we go through are all so individual and there's no one gone through different stages differently than other folks that I know that have gone through this. Um, I've had counts, which is a trauma therapy for it. I uh, went to some grief groups briefly, but I, I think um, just being able to talk to people in my immediate world has really been helpful. One thing I've noticed, I've said this before, I'm amazed how, grief comes so unexpected and you know i've said this a million times they said the farther out you get the waves of grief do become less frequent but the wave height never changes yeah it's something that i i'm gonna have to live with for the rest of my life it's a an uninvited friend that uh is kind of a necessary part of my house and my mind forever. Yes, you know, and I, I, I think it just you know shows that you know people said that the amount of grief you have is directly related to the amount of love you had. So I just think it's we got three fathers here that all lost sons. We're all grieving, and I think it's a tribute to our lost sons that 
we had so much love with them, they will be grieving the rest of our lives. And, and I don't view that as a negative. I, I, I sort of view it as a positive now because, you know, you look what's happening in the world with the pandemic and so many people that never thought that grief would be knocking on their door. It has, and they're going to be dealing with this the rest of their lives also. So right. it's it's the price of, of love. That's the way I look at it. You know, I think one thing that's really become powerful for me is the notion of memory. And, you know, with all of your children, you have these memories of different phases of their lives. And that, that that's like this living thing that you have inside you. And so Daniel's, all my memories of Daniel are like the same memories that I have of his siblings who are surviving now. And so it's like, we're lucky that we have that. That is, a, to me, a form of, of survival. Right, right. Well, I can't thank you enough for being our guest today. I am amazed when you mentioned what song you'd be playing tonight. I know you got to prepare for your, uh, your show. And that, to me, is just another piece of the puzzle. You know, I've said this before that I view Matt's passing now as a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle that was thrown on my dining room table. And the rest of my life, I'm going to be seeing how the pieces fit. I've got about 100 of the thousand pieces fitting, which means 900 not fitting. I'm down to 899 now because you gave me another piece to fit in there with Never My Love. I mean, when you, when you, when you, when you told me that, I thought you were kidding because so I know the song, but the fact you're playing it tonight of all the times for us to do this podcast interview and for all the you know musical numbers you could be playing tonight, you're doing that. You know, what are the odds of that? And these, these odds are so infinitesimal that, again, statistically, it's not a coincidence. I really believe that maybe all of our sons, Daniel, Jordan, and Matt, are all laughing at all of us now saying, don't you guys get it? You're all supposed to be meeting here talking about us. You guys are slow on the uptake here. This is all sort of what you're supposed to be doing. And maybe they're all laughing at us, which I hope they are, you know, because Matt would always, I'd make him laugh, he'd make me laugh. And it's just something that I know Matt would love to talk to you about music. Matt would spend hours and hours and hours and hours. So if you get a dream tonight about some kid with glasses maybe it's daniel and matt talking about music together with you who knows if you do tell me because maybe i'll dream about them tonight if i do i'll tell you because i do believe that this is part of the story i'll, I'll close with this you know i'm i'm jewish and matt was bar mitzvah but matt was very interested in eastern religion and he told me he got into Taoism, which i didn't even know what that was the eastern religion and i read a Article, I think it was the New York Times recently, it was very interesting. They had a theological scholar talking about how Taoists view life. And what they view is that the physical life we have here is the middle. That you are, whatever you are before you're born, you go back to that after your physical being here is over. This is just the middle it's not the end. It's a continuum. And I've asked my rabbi about that, and he's given me some interesting answers. I've done some research on the Jewish philosophy, and 
it can sort of fit, but I'm sort of coming up with my own thought process. And I, so many times man would tell me something, ah, that doesn't make any sense. And I say, it sort of does. And I think it again, and I'm sort of of the mindset now that whatever this thing is that we're here, I just believe it's part of a continuum. Are the Taoists right? Who knows? But I believe there is a continuum here. And I think we were fortunate to have our sons during that middle part, whatever you want to call it. And we're fortunate to have our relationships with them continue on, however you want to just describe that afterlife continuation of where you were before, put a name onto it, but I believe it exists. I really do. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for having me and thank you for sharing your stories with me. And Marshall, I hope you write a book. You've got some really nice observations about this and a great way of telling a story and recounting your pain and your process. I will save this before I go mentioning uh, puzzle pieces uh, at Daniel's funeral. I had a puzzle made of a picture of him when he was a little bit younger. He was probably 13 or 14 in this picture. And I asked people to take a piece of the puzzle as they were going into the, uh, into the sanctuary to take a piece from this puzzle of Daniel's. And it was basically the, the box was just puzzle pieces. So nobody could see the images of what they were, but they had to grab a piece of the puzzle. So during the ceremony, I said, I want you to decide whether you want to hold on to this piece of this puzzle or whether you want to help try to put Daniel back together. Either way is a win for us. We're never going to know exactly who Daniel was or why he left us, but we can at least try. If you hold on to this piece of the puzzle, it's going to remind you forever of my son's life. And if you put that puzzle piece back on that image of my son, we'll have a slightly more complete picture of who he was. So I really like looking at the idea of a lifelong process of trying to make sense of all of this stuff and just sort of being okay with not being able to answer all the questions. Right. That's amazing. You mentioned the puzzle because I, I just view life, you know, the one thing I've learned, I just think, is the one certainty in life is uncertainty. Life's going to be uncertain. You don't know what's around the corner. You know, we're in a pandemic now. Who ever thought we'd be in a worldwide pandemic a year ago? But we are. And I think when you lose a child, all of your preordained notions of, well, this is the linear life that I'm going to have are just thrown out the window. And in some ways, it's sort of freeing in the sense that, you know, all we've got is today. Like you mentioned, like I'm writing a book is funny because for, before Matt died, I was thinking about writing a book about my father called The the Jewish Bombardier because he just was a funny guy. It would be a funny book about World War II. He told me all these incredible things. And so I, I might get to it, The Jewish Bombardier and his grandson. I might do a book about Matt and my father because they were kindred souls in a lot of ways. That they both taught me a lot about life. And for that I'm thankful. That's awesome. You should do that. I am I have a group called the Shabby Road Orchestra, which is a Beatles. We we do kind of historical reenactment of all the Beatles records. 
Wow. So if you look up YouTube, Shabby Road Orchestra, like we did the entire Abbey mm-hmm. Road, Sgt. Pepper, White Album. We've been working on Let It Be. There's a lot of videos on YouTube that you'll, you'll be able to see, but that music has been really powerful to me. The other thing is I was a huge World War II buff as a kid, and I had a B-25 model. It was one of my wow. favorite bombers. My current piano teacher's father was a, a navigator on a B-26, which was the a slightly smaller plane, but I love the B-24s and the B-25s and B-17s and yeah, I just I'm still I'm still a big history history guy. I love war history. It's funny because my dad he died from Alzheimer's in the last year of his life. There's a place in Florida that had all these World War II vintage aircraft and we took him there and he couldn't remember what he had for breakfast, but we actually went through the B24 with him and he knew that from the nose to the get, to the tail. He knew where the, where the turret gunner sat. He knew where the Navigator, you know, the 10 guys on the B-24, four officers, the pilot, co-pilot, navigator, and um, bombardier. And he said, nobody cared who was an officer or enlisted. He goes, if we were going to die, we're all going to die. And my dad was just such a positive guy that he would tell me years later, he goes, you know, I really had fun during World War II. I go, Dad, you're the only person the huge in the history of humanity that ever said World War II was fun. <laughs> he goes, no. I, I, he goes, I met a lot of people. I went around the world. I went to Australia, New Zealand. He knew Asia, like the back of his hand, because he had to know it for, for bombing runs. He goes, I didn't have a scratch on me. And it was really fun. And I go, that's the way you looked at life. He always looked at the positive. And even with Matt's, issues dealing with the chronic depression that he had to fight every day. I think he was the same way. He fought it to look at the good things in life. And I think that is something that I think all of our sons did. And we've got to give them great kudos and acknowledge what they did for the time that they were here and be thankful for that. I really believe that. But I, Anna, I can't thank you enough for being our guest today and being willing to open up because, again, it's something that is very personal. And I learned a lot from every conversation I have with somebody that loses somebody, but also somebody that loses somebody from death by suicide. And the fact we're both fathers, we're both lost sons, there's obviously a synergy we both had and i want to again thank you so much for opening up because i've learned a lot today well thank you both for having me and i look forward to talking again sometime absolutely and uh, just try to stay warm up there with the snow (laughs) i will well thanks everybody so much for listening and we hope everybody enjoyed today's episode again i want to thank adam for being a wonderful guest and enlightening us with some really enlightening stories about about his wonderful son and again thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon thank you for joining us on hope through grief with your co-hosts marshall adler and steve smusky we hope our episode today was helpful and informative since we are not medical or mental health professionals 
we cannot and will not provide any medical, psychological, or mental health advice. Therefore, if you or anyone you know requires medical or mental health treatment, please contact a medical or mental health professional immediately. Say you feel